0: Crow Hill here from Beer and Conversation with Pigweed and Crow Hill. Today we review a porter and discuss Ayn Rand. Hello and welcome to Beer and Conversation with Pigweed and Crow Hill. Good evening Pigweed.
1: Good evening Crow Hill. What's on
0: your mind today.
1: Oh, uh, not much. Let me see. I'll just help myself to this here. Do have a beer?
0: No, you can't drink that.
1: Oh well. Uh, so I've been reading some mine Rand. Yeah. And she says that uh, selfishness is a virtue. So I figure I'll drink both of our beers, and you'll have zero <laughs> beers, and that, and then I'll kind of, I'll be a philosopher. But
0: then what's my virtue is to drink the two beers <laughs> too. I mean, some, we gotta work that yeah, out but, somehow.
1: Where, did you read Ayn Rand, too? Yes. Oh, shoot. Okay, here's your okay. Bag. <laughs> All right. I did put my lips on there a yeah, little bit, so okay, sorry, sorry about that. that. And, uh, yeah, so let's get into the beers, and then we'll get into Ein.
0: Yes, and it is Ein. You know, for a long time, I've heard people pronounce it a bunch of different ways, and I finally looked it up, and it is Ein. And I saw
1: a uh, Mike Wallace interview from, like, 19... It was black and white. It was, like, 1965. hmm It was Ein.
0: Okay, Yeah. All right, so this is Sierra Nevada porter, and it's just a porter. It doesn't well, have bananas in it or jelly beans or anything else. And the only thing that's slightly strange about it is it's bottle-conditioned. What does that mean? Which means it's carbonated in the bottle, so there's going to be a little bit of sediment in there from the from the yeast.
1: Um, as but opposed otherwise, to, as opposed just to having the carbonation
0: porter. forced in. Exactly, like okay. most beers, yes. Yeah, so so uh, it's just a straightforward porter, so we're going to have some roastiness mm. oh. and some... Uh, you know, oh, a nice. little bit of dark character to it.
1: And if it's uh, if it's Sierra Nevada, they're going to they're going to do a, a good job. A
0: home run. So here's what it says on the label:
1: oh, Porter is
0: nice. a testament to roasted malts, which give it a rich, bittersweet, and roasted coffee-like flavor that's a perfect complement to a variety of foods. That sounds fair. So and? yeah, porter is is sort of like a stout without the without the burnt flavor.
1: Yeah. And I would I would say for a lot of people, and even me, if I do uh, a blind taste test, I'm not sure I, I might screw up uh, a exactly. difference between yeah. a porter and a stout. It depends
0: because uh, there is a fine line between them. And it's a bit, yeah. it's a
1: little, if, if it gets a little more roasty, a little bit more coffee in the stout end than the porter, but uh, that's really the only difference. Yeah. And, uh, and uh, did you give me an ABV? What did, did you figure out what that's coming in? Oh, you know, I don't I'm, think I'm, I'm, g- got I'm guessing off. it's right in the 5-ish.
0: Yeah, five point six.
1: Just regular, regular workman's uh, beer, and uh, yes, and uh, yeah. If you're wondering what the style tastes like without coconuts and jalapenos,
0: (laughs) then try this. This is a good one. That's right. Yeah, every once in a while you get tired of the weird beers. You know, you just want to have a regular, straightforward beer, and this is pretty straightforward. Very good. Well done.
1: Uh, uh, Ayn Rand. Mm -hmm. Well, before I could get in here, we have invited back our uh, literary contributor. Yes. And the only person that I know that has read both uh, Atlas Shrugged and The Fountainhead. Okay. And, uh, yes, Longinus. Who else? Longinus, yes. Who else? Come on, welcome in. Come, uh, come visit. How you doing?
2: I'm I'm doing fine. How's everybody? Well we're doing great here. More than I know, so but the three of us will. are doing well, so that's <laughs>
1: good. <laughs> yes. Uh yes. Uh born Ein uh, what did we just say Rosenbaum, Rosenbaum right. uh, in nineteen oh five in Saint Petersburg, Russia. Yeah. Uh, back when it was Saint Petersburg.
0: Right. Well yeah. it was
1: Saint it was St. Petersburg, then it was Stalingrad yeah. and then back to Saint Petersburg. Yeah, Is that the deal? Right. Yeah. Uh moved to the US in nineteen twenty six, which was you know, in the early stages of Stalin. Yeah. And uh, her dad was a pharmacist. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, lost that. Sure. And uh, probably a little resentful about that. Now, I don't know <laughs> how she... I forget the story about how she came to see some... Uh, you know, how in 1926, after they no longer had a business, they got the money and the permission for her to come to the United States. I don't know. Yeah. She never saw her parents again. And
2: uh, Oh, wow. Uh, uh right.
1: And she... Now, and how would her English be so good that... Her first her goal when she got here was to go to Hollywood to be a screenwriter.
0: Well, I don't know. Do you, have you seen an interview with her from way back early? Yeah. Was there, and her English was good? Yeah, really good. Maybe she was taught at a well, I mean,
1: school or something. She's brilliant, so maybe huh? she's just somebody picked up on the language. Yeah, anyway, yeah, that, yeah, was job, so, I mean, that was her job, so that was the thing. She went out there. She actually basically ran. Uh, uh, Ran into Cecil B. DeMille. Okay. And said, hey, i uh, like a job. Uh, and she's like, "It goes to work in a, a wardrobe
0: uh, department? A, a uh, department yeah. at, a, at
1: a movie studio. Right. And finds herself in charge of the in charge of the wardrobe studio. <laughs> and then sooner or later, she's writing.
0: What else would you expect from Ayn Rand than to be Just short. To, to, become, to become in charge of the studio after a while? <laughs> I know, while, right? You
1: know? Just. <laughs> Just a uh, you know a, a yeah. tour de force, yes. you know. She, yeah. just, uh, just a truck coming down the so, road. So well, let's you. talk about some of her, her major ideas, right? and then we'll go through her fictional works and see how these ideas uh, come play into it. Because I don't. Do people think of her more as as, a, as an author or as a uh, philosopher? <laughs> Apparently, philosophers
0: don't give her much credence at all. Uh, all right, philosophers kind of ignore her. Okay. She's.
2: I think she's the every man's philosopher. I think that a lot of people really just fall fall in love with her with, with her ideas, probably through her books, and then they read the virtue of selfishness and some of the other. Her she had a newsletter out there uh, for many years.
1: But but but, she, but objectivism. She came up with the with the, the 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 name and the tenets. I mean, she's she's the founder of a philosophy. Yeah. So mm-hmm. you know, I mean, of that account sure. for something. Yeah.
0: yeah exactly. <laughs> yeah. So a lot of people follow objectivism. And, you know, we listened to that, uh, that podcast. Oh, about, that little
1: intro to... Yeah. yeah.
0: Yeah, and there's some basic principles to objectivism. Reality exists. Man is an end in and of himself. Mm-hmm. Uh, the three virtues are reason, purpose, and self-esteem. The highest value is to enhance your own existence. Uh, man doesn't exist for anyone else, okay. but he exists for himself. I'm, I'm, I'm hearing these three works. Go ahead. <laughs> it's, it's based on, supposedly, objectivism is based on first principles and reason. And then this kind of the summary is John Galt's speech at the end of Atlas mm-hmm. Shrugged. I will mm-hmm. not live for another man or require another man to live for me. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, is very opposed to self-sacrifice. So That's kind of a whirlwind, quick summary. Uh, okay, that stuff. was
1: very good. Uh, well, uh, objectivism... Uh, the idea that things actually exist yeah. outside of your experience, that A equals A, sounds like you're just stating a fact. It's just, it's, but it's been contested from Plato to postmodernism, right? That, that, that A equals A. Right.
2: And it's been, you know, I would say, sort of proven with uh, uh, scientific experiments. You know, everything from uh, uh, quantum physics to just the fact of uh, uh, neurology, of understanding of how we see things and how uh, what you know, that, that
1: Which, that, that things exist because they're perceived to exist, or that they actually exist in and of... The, or all they all actually
2: exist in and of... The, well, I think everybody believes they actually exist in and of themselves, but they also believe that we really can't know what that actual existence is because we filter everything... Through our senses and our brains. Well that's that's the
0: that's a distinction. Yeah. That yeah. so A equals A, you know, math and science wouldn't work without A equals A. <laughs> <Yeah>. But <laughs> but there is there is the big distinction between what something is in an objective sense and how we perceive it. Right? Or how we understand it. Right. So that's that's a big important uh, but to, shift but and, the idea of asserting that something is what it is is
1: yeah. right there, here in the beginning of the 20th century is also when postmodernism is is right. is you know taking hold mm-hmm. and she's like no I'm not having it uh-huh. I, think, I think is i guess uh, the the is the uh tree in a forest oh right would you call yeah. that part of this uh discussion is like well, of course it makes a sound <laughs> and then right, but the, the but the opposite side of that is it requires experience, right? Even uh, old Schrdinger's cat. Yeah, was it requires the experience of the person for a well, that? That
0: requires the observer. Yes, yeah, so that's yeah. that's right. a, that's a weird thing there. And I remember my physics teacher saying that the question of when a tree falls in the wood does it make a sound? Um, it's it's not really a physics question. It's a experience question. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, so. All right. So when I was trying to drink our, everybody's beers mm-hmm. out of selfishness, uh, really, she's, she self she means rational self-interest, yeah, right, which is different than self than, than the kind of like it's all about me selfishness. Not, not
0: selfishness like stealing from other people and you know getting my way in a bad way. Ra- this rational self-interest with a lot, which a lot of people talk about, rational self-interest yeah. means okay, kind of like Epicureanism. You know, Epicureanism doesn't mean eating everything until you're fat and being, you know, it's, it's like, it's like having a refined, sensible view Mm -hmm. of, of, you know, appealing to your senses and all this other kind of stuff. So rational self-interest would be, I'm not, I'm not going to do something that's only good for me now. I'm going to do something that's good for me in the long run.
2: Right. But I was just going to say, she, in her introduction to the virtue of selfishness, she, Takes the exact meaning and dictionary right, definition of the word selfishness, which is concern with one's own interests. Okay, and that's just what she starts with. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh,
1: but so, l- l- see, I am just going to drop right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna drink yours and everybody else's beer. That uh, whenever I come across it, because I'm only concerned about myself. Is that in your rational self-interest, because now you're actually you're going to lose friends, probably right. all your friends, yeah. uh, if mm-hmm. you're so selfish that you, you're not going to have a mate, if you're so selfish that you just take what you want and will end up in jail, mm-hmm. uh, right? So, right? So it's not just about feeding your own needs. The rational self-interest well, it's, it's takes a, into account the consequences of these
2: things. We can make a distinction of what, what you just described as a subjective selfishness, and she is... Uh, uh, talking about a rational self-interest. Okay. So, so yeah. My, yeah. I remember
0: one of my philosophy professors was, somebody Somebody will say, okay, you know, so one person seems to be selfish. They, they go around and they take from other people. And then they'll say, well, this other person, they're also selfish. Because even though they're doing things for other people, they do that because that's what they want to do right so they're also being selfish because they're doing what they want and that guy's doing what they want my philosophy professor said okay i'm going to invent a new word melfish and a, right. a melfish person is a person who goes around doing what he wants with no consideration of others and an unmelfish person is a person who who wants to do things that help other people see what progress we've made <laughs> no. right. Right. so I think the, it's, it's somewhat of a sophomoric claim, and nobody here is making this claim, but you hear it from time to time, that even people who are so-called unselfish, they're really not unselfish. They're actually doing what they want to do, too. It's just that they want different things. Well, you know, that's kind of dumb. Well, look at it this way. Uh,
1: the, the, that, the argument against altruism is being entirely unselfish isn't really true in the sense that you enjoy being acknowledged for yeah. uh, for for your philanthropy, say. Right. right? Say, a, a philanthropist still wants his name on the wing of the hospital that he just gave $10 million to. And so that's not really altruistic because, you know, you're enjoying the heaps of praise and the name on the building. And yeah, but, because, yes, but I'm okay I, I, with that. What's exactly. You? You know,
0: like, for example, you take somebody who spends their entire life serving the poor and like never does anything for themselves and they're doing all this because they think God has called them to do that or something. Yeah. So they're really being selfish because they're doing this because they think God <laughs> has called them to do it and they want to go to heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah, right. But, but but that's that's just to, to abuse the word selfish. Right. You know that's that's mm-hmm. obviously mm-hmm. a different thing than the person who goes around stealing other people's beer. Uh, I,
1: what I'm saying is, huh? is saying is that you're if a person that why altruism is, uh, is not a virtue or, or self-sacrifice. Mm-hmm. To hold self-sacrifice as the highest virtue, uh, the, is the, as the moral idea ideal, uh, is a problem. It's not what we're here for. Mm-hmm. The guy who, the lawyer who wants to be the best lawyer in town, mm-hmm. right? Above all things else, he wants to be the guy that you go to. When I need a lawyer, he's available. Right. You know what I mean? So by him pursuing his selfish desire to be the best lawyer in town benefits me as somebody who needs a lawyer. You know what I mean? So society Mm -hmm. benefits by our pursuing our own,
2: trying to be the best you that you can be, Mm -hmm. ultimately benefits everybody. And, you know, I mean, just... And I think that we can see that there is a, a understanding of taking care of oneself, which is a different way of saying selfish. Uh, we see it in all of the, the the major religions out there. Set thy set thy own house in order, and you'd see it in the in the uh, Hindu uh, 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 ideas of well. For example, they have the Hindu idea of where life is divided into three parts. The first part is you grow up and, and you listen to your mom and dad and you learn and then the second part is you are working out there you are contributing society you are creating you, you you are taking care of your family you are responsible for for yourself for your your and for yourself and for your family and the last part of it is where it, it becomes more selfish where it's like all right i'm an old man and retired and I am going to go ahead and do the back forty and meditate myself, and not deal with society. I've whatsoever. done my part now. I am gone, <laughs> right? But I, but I, I just wanted to say that because the, the within the virtue of selfishness, you know, one of the things that I, I enjoyed was her descriptions of selfishness, and I thought it was you know a, a lot more in depth than uh, what we take it to, to take for granted. But she has she attacks a lot of the other moral systems out there or does not see the positives in the the great religions or in the humanist yeah. tradition of, yeah. of societies.
0: Yeah. yeah, see, what I see as... What what I think Ayn Rand did that is good is you take an idea and you try to push that idea as far as you can mm-hmm. and see how, how far you can take it and what you can do with it. You know, somebody takes, like, a free market, right? And they try to push the concept of a free market as far as it can be done. And I think that's a very valuable thing. You yeah. take take a concept yeah. like libertarianism, free market, selfishness, whatever it is, and you push it as far as it can go. And that's not necessarily going to end up with a well-rounded, correct philosophy, but it does help you to maybe see some things that you wouldn't have seen before. And I think what what she does is... I See, I don't agree with this idea that you should that selfishness is always good. I don't agree with the idea that self-sacrifice is always bad. But I I do like the idea of taking that idea Mm -hmm. and seeing how far we can take it and explaining Mm -hmm. how selfishness could be seen as good.
1: Right. And and, and the idea, if we take self-sacrifice as the uh, highest moral position you could take, what does that get you? Right. Yeah. So, right. She, she right. works it out to the end, and of course, the, it, what's wrapped up in this is all is 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 capitalism, an unregulated, unbridled laissez-faire right. capitalism is going to produce the best society, and, and you know collect uh, that collectivism, which she you know saw firsthand. Uh, is the worst things you can Mm -hmm. have and then if you look at the opposite end of that will be individualism right uh, so do you want to get into the works well let let me go through my three things here so so i
0: think what rand is motivated by the idea of if you start with the assumption that everyone is essentially selfish then how can you build a system or a philosophy that optimizes life on that assumption Mm -hmm. right so the first question is um, does it do that? And the second question is, is it really true that people are essentially selfish? I, so I would think that, no, people are not essentially selfish. And... Well, well uh, I don't know. If
1: you back it up, uh, we are socialized to not be selfish. Mm-hmm. I, would say, also- uh, I would say... I would say a baby is selfish. Yeah, well, okay.
0: Right. Well, that's very true. A baby um, is very selfish. But even among... And even among animals, we see a certain amount of sacrifice for the sake of the group and that sort of thing. So I think... I think there is an element, like one of the things I don't understand about Rand is if she wants to say that self-sacrifice is such a big thing, but she still believes in a military, well, how can you have a military without a concept of self-sacrifice? Right? I mean, a basic part, you know, Captain Captain Crowhill was basically taught your life is disposable. <laughs> you know? And and you have to you have to embrace that, right.
2: and your th- thoughts and don't mean a thing. You do what I say, period. Yeah. So your private first. Place. So
0: I think that's there right. are some contradictions going on there with that. But but any that's okay, right. let's go on to the next one. So she assumes that the market is so good at allocating allocating resources that's all you need, and okay, that's I mean that's. I think it's good to push that idea. I'm not sure I completely believe it, but I think it's good to, to, push, that to push that idea. But the opposite of that idea
1: would be that the uh, that you need an external force, like a government, to tell private industry what they need to be producing. Right. When when the market tells <laughs> you if 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 everybody wants to wear pink tennis shoes, <laughs> guess what?
2: There will be pink tennis shoes from here
1: till on, tomorrow. In on the store, yeah, on and, the you the know, shelves tomorrow without right. any government involvement.
2: Yeah. Okay. Right. What, what, what I saw uh, about that is that she was extremely adept at describing socialism and its nefarious results. Uh, yeah. and, yes. and I thought that was just, she was dead on with that. But I did not, you know, I, I think that capitalism is, a, is, well, let me put it this way. I think capitalism is the place where dreams are born and, 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 and created. And he captured and 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 believed in. Yeah. Um, with that, it, but it needs rules. Gosh darn it! It needs rules. That's what I wrote down here. So, you mean we don't need
1: an FDA or an EPA or OSHA? Yeah. Really, we would be much better off not having any of these three things.
0: Yeah, it's hard yeah, to hard to push that's that. It's a toughie. Yeah. So yeah. so that's that brings me, you, uh, Longinus. Your point brings me to my third thing here, which was. Her philosophy is very appealing to people who are very worried about collectivism. Yeah,
1: so, and that's a good thing to be worried about. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So,
0: so you see people who are against collectivism of, in various sorts really kind of go towards Aunt Ayn Rand because mm-hmm. they see, okay, she has a, a somewhat of a remedy for that.
1: Big Weed here. We love receiving comments from our listeners, and so if you have something to contribute, comment disagree we'd love to hear it we can be reached at BigWeedShow at gmail.com just called Pigweed, but crowhill will listen to all right so let's want to get into the work yeah, let's get into three she so the she's written what 150 books or something like that but she's <laughs> got uh, uh, her main fictional works which was interesting. She wanted, she wanted to be a screenwriter right from the start, so it's like she wanted to get her eye. She felt that the best way to deliver her ideas was through uh, was through art, which I thought you know, pretty right. interesting rather yep. than just going straight philosophy. At any rate, Anthem, written in 1938, my my, my uh, skinny little book is uh, 112 pages. Yeah, well,
0: mine's what this nine by twelve, and <laughs> yeah. it's uh, 42 <laughs> okay, pages. just so, uh, very <laughs> short.
1: Uh, and. Uh, So, let me just run through the story as quickly as I can. It's a dystopian future, post-apocalyptic, to where they're living in a pre-industrial lifestyle, right? Right. Almost like candles. (laughs) Right. Yeah, uh, candles
0: are the great invention. uh, (laughs)
1: Candles are the great invention. And uh, uh, it's purely collective. Yeah. No, there are no families. You're not
0: allowed to think anything unless other people think it.
1: Yes, everything is about the collective, to the point where, oh, well, I'll get to the weed just yet. But uh, so our our main character is Equality Seven Twenty Five Twenty One, <laughs> and that's everybody has a name like that. Right. Uh, was kind of like the smartest kid in his class, and but you don't get to choose your profession. When it came to time, they sent him to be a street sweeper because he was a little too precocious. Yeah, right. Right. So he becomes. I didn't want him to get above himself. Yes, we don't need people being smarter than anybody else, which mm-hmm. is one of the messages, right? We we're going to be so equal that right. we don't want any exceptionalism here. Yeah. Uh, which is their which is the problem with their their lack of development, right? Anyway, so uh, he becomes a, a, a street sweeper on the edge of town. He catches the eye of a of a woman who's yeah. working in a collective farm right he he and another street sweeper find a tunnel yeah and down in that tunnel they see remnants of the old days right and realizes that there was uh, there was there was some science and knowledge from the past he tries to he he thinks if he if he introduces that to the people in charge that they'll pat him on the back for his you know that look yeah, I but can- he
0: spends some time down there like trying to figure it out Exactly. It's, it's almost like his laboratory. He figures yeah, yeah, yeah. out no, how, he figures how
1: electricity works, right? Yeah, and he figures, I'm gonna—I know this is a crime. Yeah, I know that this is the kind of thing that gets you killed. But I'm gonna blow their minds. <laughs> yes, I'm gonna t- show them that we can change the world with this stuff. That's right, and they'll forgive my transgressions. Yeah, and it didn't cool. work out that way. So he he escapes somehow. Mm-hmm. And goes to the Forbidden Forest where they right. go along with the, the, the lady friend. Well she catches up uh, with them later. She catches yeah, up of right. them later, and they find a house from the olden days that has books in it. A bunch yeah. of books. And yeah. he declares that he's going to start a new way of living. And uh, yeah, right? He's gonna say so he's gonna he's gonna So you gotta go through the, the, the your personal
0: pronoun thing.
1: Right. So yeah, alright. So, so, that, so that's so that's the story. The, the end of it is yeah. I celebrate The individual. Yes. And that's, you know, over this stupid collective that had been so, that had left Man in the Dark Ages. I am going to create a new thing based on I. Right. Why is that? uh, The I thing is a big deal. Yes. Because from the first page, he refers (laughs) to himself as we. Yes. And I'm going. Everybody else is they. (laughs) And I'm going, is he, is he And then, you know, you realize nobody's allowed to say I. Yeah, you can only you can only be weed. Boy, that's a tough. It is uh, tough. Uh, it is uh, tough, uh, and it's 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 jarring when you try to read it. I got annoyed by it after a while. It's yeah. Like at first, I'm like, all right, uh, uh, I get it. I'll get used to it. Yeah. I never got used to it. Yeah. At the end of the book, he says weed. I'm like, oh shoot, it's just uh, just him again. <laughs> but I get it. You know, the the whole point was collectivism over individualism. What I liked about it was. In these dystopian novels, there's usually a heavy police state. Mm-hmm. Right? With guards everywhere and barbed wire and cameras watching everybody. Right. What I liked about this one was that they had so controlled the minds of everybody, you don't need all of that stuff. Right. If you get, right, if you're, if you're grown from the very beginning to think that this is the only way to be, then who's rebelling against anything? Right. So I So I thought, you know. That was interesting, that there was no real police state, and there were, nobody really stopping you from going doing anything you want, except for... Your conditioning.
2: Like, you're, yeah, your conditioning. <laughs> exactly. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yep. I mean, nobody's, being, nobody's really being tortured or threatened or anything. It's just like, well, you know, you get them early enough, and... Uh, yeah,
2: okay. You
1: get scared. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, so that's the little 100 pages she wrote in 1938. How about the biggie? Is that shrugs long? Enough? I it's a thousand than, pages. It's
2: more than a thousand pages. <laughs> it's like eleven hundred pages. But don't ballroom don't ballroom. be so be, it is eleven hundred pages that read really well. And when you get into it, I'm I'm a romantic and, and the fact is that she creates these wonderful characters that you you want to be. And I think that is an it, pushes you through. So 1,100 pages did not seem like 1,100 All right, pages so, this so this is Go
1: 1957. So this is
2: 1957. And the way that the the plot that you describe for Anthem is the plot for Atlas Shrugged, that there's different circumstances and different settings, but it is basically there are a group of really uh, productive individual uh, industrialists out there uh, uh, Dagny, and then there is the copper mine person. I can't remember. I, I read this several uh, years ago. And so there's a bunch of indu- industrialists out there that are starting to feel this is incri- Hank
1: Reardon? Hank Reardon. The, Hank Reardon. the, the steel, steel guy. guy. Right, yeah. yeah. The other guy has kind of so a... The a copper mine guy that's, that's down in
2: Mexico, Chile, right? In right. Mexico yeah, and yeah, Chile. he's and,
0: got the Hispanic name. Yeah, and then
2: there's uh, right. uh, the uh, uh, petroleum guy, Will right. uh, uh, Ellis. And, and oh, right. And let's not forget about John Galt, but we'll, but we'll get to him. We'll forever.
1: get to John Galt.
2: But the, but the bottom line is, is like all these people have created these, these industrial corporations or companies, they're not even corporations, they're companies out there that are producing and adding value to the right. society by creating tons and tons of goods, creating the railroads, creating the steel right. for the railroads and what they are up against is a government that is adding regulation upon regulation upon regulation not for things such as safety and not uh, and environmental but for things of trying to uh, protect society from society well they also it's, uh,
1: it's repeated in the in the movie series anyway Common good, common good, right. common good. Yeah, the moochers. Right? So it seems like <laughs> the mo- seem, right. Ro- like, Ro-
2: Moocher, right? One of, it's, 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 is, one is, is one of the uh, characters <laughs>
1: yeah. there? Right. So right. So so it's it doesn't seem uh, it's, right. It's not that the go- government is trying to confiscate for its own for its own good. It's actually just for the common.
2: It's good, trying to redistribute. Right? Yeah, for the collectivized, it was, the collectivized good, which is based uh, on and,
1: and the, they seem like. You know, they're just trying to do the best by all people, in a way, in
0: a sense. But yeah, that's one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is they're, what they're trying to do is take away from the productive people to give to the moochers, to the non-productive people who are just trying to suck up the resources of everybody else. And the idea is if you focus too much on those people, on their needs, the people who aren't doing anything productive but are just receiving, then you're going to destroy
1: the productive Exactly. Alright, we'll right. finish out the plot yeah. and then right. we'll so, look we'll the right. so, we'll at the ideas. I jumped ahead.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Well well, we'll finish it really quickly. So they're having a harder and harder time to to run their businesses. And prices of
1: everything's going because up. Because the right. prices
2: are going up, the regulation is increasing. Uh, and I think at the end of the day is Hank Reardon comes up with a metal alloy which is stronger and lighter than <clears throat> anything out there. And Daphne wants to use that alloy for her railroad ties. And the government says, no, 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 you can't do that because you're going to be putting this person out of business and doing this and that. And then that's the the final thing. But then there's John Gall. Let's Let's not forget about about that. All throughout the thing is there is the question, who is John Gall? Lingering in the background. And what we find out, and I'm... Destroying the uh, uh, plot. Here. Spoiler alert! But spoiler alert, right? But the bottom line is, John Gott was this guy who created this motor that ran on static electricity, so you wouldn't have to put petroleum or anything in there. But he got so fed up with the government and all of the rules and regulations and the now way no, that the company itself,
1: that. the company itself passed down to the next generation. So they developed this motor. The next generation comes along and they and they take in straight up. Communist, from each according to his needs and to uh, right. means,
2: and, to, and it just, just sits.
1: Yeah, and they go, they, and everybody's like, "Well, wait a minute." So and doesn't Dagme like find it in some abandoned
0: building or something? Right. Like that? Yes, yes. So
1: the people are going. Uh, the, so the workers are like, "Wait a minute," because because Jim has six kids and I don't, and I'm doing and I'm working harder. He gets paid more. Yeah. And He's, so the company <laughs> collapses on this stupid. Communist right. idea, and he as, just leaves. And, but, <laughs> yes, but as he leaves, what does he declare that he's going to do? He's going to stop the motor of the world. Now, does he right? become the pirate?
2: Well, he he stops the motor of the world in, in a couple of ways. Is because what he does is he he, he siphons he,
1: off the he, he, best he doesn't and the all, right.
2: He well he doesn't allow his motor that right. would change the world yep. to get on the market, and right. then he siphons off everybody else and says we're all. All the rich folk out there, are all the people that produce things for this world, are going on strike, and we're just leaving you. And we're going to this mysterious valley out there in Colorado somewhere. Yeah. was
0: Who was the pirate there? Ragnar, Ragnarson, or
1: something? Yeah, yeah. 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 Well, uh, you know, so 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 the government directives are price controls, right? Wage controls, production mandates. You you can't leave your job, and you have to turn over your patents and your intellectual property to the government for the good of all. And doesn't that sound like communism? (laughs) And what what happens... Everything falls apart. Yeah, gas is $42 a gallon. And And what happened
2: to the USSR? Uh,
1: Exactly. (laughs) I mean, mean, she was really
2: dead on to that, with with that. So, I I mean, it was a a fun read.
1: Yeah, I mean, all that confiscation... So the best of the will be or people don't want to. Right? You're not going to work harder and create something better if the guy who does nothing gets the same amount. That you... The, the, tragedy general,
0: the, you know? the tragedy of the commons, basically. Right. Well, so, yeah. yeah. Before
2: work. you get to the fountainhead, just, just, just a, just one more thing is that the the apex of the whole novel is John Galt's speech. So he goes out there yep. and he takes over the radio and the TV. Uh, he, she never forecasted the 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 the, the internet or the computer, or anything, yeah, which right. is right. very funny. But so uh, also,
1: when is it? Is it? Is, it is it part three? When is it set? What year? is Well, it, is she it? doesn't
2: say. But no. from looking at things out there, you would say it was set mid twentieth century. I, I would suggest so it. roughly the time that she's right.
1: writing. You th- I mean, yeah, okay, yeah. correct. I don't
2: okay. know if there are that's futuristic in any. Yes. Yeah, not, okay. not feature resistors. Jets aren't there. And so it's more right. right down in there. But the one thing which is really interesting and in, 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 in reading this, this, The Virtue of Selfishness by Ayn Rand is a philosophy. It is a nonfiction book. It talks about ideas. But this is really the first book that says, well, if you really want to know what my philosophy is, go read my fiction. And it's yeah. not really, a, so it was the first time I, I see her A lot of people quoting. say that about
0: C.S. Lewis, too. If you, if you want to understand his philosophy, read his fiction. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> all right. it. Crow Hill here. If you like Beer in Conversation with pigweed and Crow Hill, please like it, share it, give us a good review, tell your friends about it, put it on Facebook, all that good stuff. We like to do the show, but we're not so great at the social media promotion, so we'd like to ask our fans if they could help us out with that. Thank you so much. And now, back to the show. So, the Fountainhead. All right, so this is a little bit unfair because I read Anthem, okay. and I read Atlas Shrugged, and I did not read Fountainhead. So I, I've got to summarize Fountainhead okay. just simply based on the movie. Well, yeah, or, we'll, we'll,
1: re, we'll refer over to uh, Longinus for some extra...
0: Okay, so Fountainhead...
1: Head. Fountainhead is about the architect, right? Yeah.
0: So it's about uh, Howard Rourke, who played by Gary Cooper in the movie...
1: And so he is, is, the book is, uh, 1943. Right. Uh, in is. the movie, uh, 49, uh, it's yeah, 49. so pretty close. Yeah, pretty so, close.
0: so, uh, Howard Rourke is this genius architect. Uh, you're supposed to believe that. Right. Although, whenever I look at his stuff, I just think it just looks like it's Frank Lloyd Wright. I don't like it very much. But anyway, you're supposed, <laughs> you're supposed to believe that he's a genius architect. And he's out to do things his way. He starts off, he's kind of a struggling, uh, you know, he's got this firm he's trying to he doesn't have any clients, he's have not any good, clients? Yeah nobody's nobody's uh, helping him out and he has these offers to come help out some other architects who are doing things the way that you can actually sell stuff right he you know, no no i'm doing things my way well he says i'd rather work as a day laborer than you know than compromise and so so he ends up working as <laughs> <for day labor. laughs> a day laborer right? Yeah he's working in a quarry drilling out granite or something and Somehow or other, he he gets this gig where he's going to design this big building, and it gets his big his big chance, and he designs this great building, and the the woman, um, what was what was her name? I forget. Um, she she sees it and falls says, "Oh, this is so fantastic!" And so she back when he was working in the quarry, she. They both caught each other's eye, and yeah, she kind of she liked saw his him. And, yeah, so she liked him, but then he was gone because he went and he had this gig, and they they're, they don't see each other for a while until he builds this building, and then she like, oh, this is such a fantastic building, and then she meets him and finds out that it's the same guy who built this building, and she's overcome, and this is all wonderful, and she they you know they have this sordid love affair, and and but nothing works out. Uh, there's always this weird. There's always this weird tension in Ayn Rand's stories about the, the motivations of a woman in a, in a romantic relationship. It's very, very strange. But anyway, things don't work out. She runs off and mar- marries this um, newspaper guy. But the Howard Rourke continues to try to build buildings his way. He won't compromise. Like He comes and says, here's my plan. And they say, well, what if you just added some dork columns here and there? And he's like, yeah. no, no, I'm not going to do that. It's my way or forget it. What they do is they take his. He ends up getting this job, where he's going to design a building for somebody else, while the other guy put his name on exactly. it. Exactly on the on the promise, though, that it gets done exactly the way he says. Right. So the guy starts off doing that way, but then he changes it and he starts adding the door columns or whatever. Yeah, right.
1: right. Under the under pressure from under the pressure because he's a
0: bit of a weenie, right? Yeah. So so then. Um, so then he goes out and blows the building up, um, and then there's a big trial, and that's when he gets to make his big speech about how no, I I should run yeah, my life I, my I, way. It's, it's kind of like right. the John Galt speech. It, yeah. Yeah. he comes out and says, you know, you know, I, I should be able to live my life my way and do things. Here, here,
1: here. This is this is his uh, <laughs> trial okay. speech. I
0: came here to say that I do not recognize anyone's right to one minute of my life, nor to any part of my energy. Nor to any achievement of mine, no matter who makes the claim, how large their number or her, how great their need, I wish to come here and say that I'm a man who does not exist for others. So, so that's, that's very I consistent. Barry, I'm Indian,
1: right? so that although, although I tell you what, so you know, you, a lot of movies, sir, are uh, the pivotal scene is the great uh, court, court scene. Court scene, yeah. I, I thought his delivery was weak. Yeah, it wasn't great. It wasn't great. I well, mean, I, I, even overall, I, I, I remember him in High Noon, you know, he was, he's a great cowboy, but I just didn't think he was a compelling actor in one this, thing, one in thing in I this liked, movie at all.
0: One thing I liked about the movie was there was a scene where, where uh, somebody else was doing something that wasn't really in his interest, but it was in their interest. Right. And they said, you know, I'm going to do it, and he said, that's what you should do. You know, he was, like, affirming their right to do their thing the way they wanted right. to
1: do. I thought that was kind of cool.
0: Right, but,
1: um, right. so the, the great creators, the thinkers, the artists, the scientists, the inventors stood alone against the men of their time. <laughs> so, you know, so the, the theme is, again, the individual over the collective, right? right. Like, that. Yeah. Who, who drives history forward? It's not committees, Right, it's no. always it's it's men of genius and men of of passion and men uh, who are committed despite what people around them think. Which is but all they, very which...
0: true, except for the fact they're standing on the shoulders of hundreds of men before them.
2: But right? I, I I would also throw in just a couple of other examples to to examine that um, science, for example. I mean, right now we are in a era of science productivity and advancement that's far greater than any time out there because and that's because of the internet and sort of that collectivized or hive mind of science yeah, out there. Yeah, no, there really are are, there are like no
1: right the genius standouts of science who are sort of alone in a lab and <laughs> and propelling society. I think that forward. age is over. I think yeah, it, it yeah, used
0: right. to be it used uh-huh. to be you could have the single genius who would work on something. Right. Now it's just impossible. Things oh. are so complicated. You need whole groups of people to right.
2: work on things. I, I, I would also bring another example out there. I watched a wonderful show out there called "The Songwriters of uh, Nashville," mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was it was a really interesting piece because it really talked about how, like, for the last forty years, country songs and the and and, and the good country songs, the ones that will be that la- that will be here in a hundred years, were sort of collaborations and they're not just coming from the Hank Williams senior. So that's sort of, you know, so that's sort of my, yeah, let's re-examine what it means to be uh, a creative individual. The idea of creating a poem and, you know, and saying, well, I can, you know, this is my poem and and, and I'm not going to change a word. It's a little right. bit different from having a building out there that's part
1: of a city, that's <laughs> yeah. part of you well, know streetscape. Well, that's, a street yes, that's, that, that's the thing. So the uh, you know here's a, another uh, uh, Howard Rourke. Throughout the centuries, there were men who took first steps down new roads, armed with nothing but their own vision. All right, I admire that. You know, I, I, that, that that that's great at all. But uh, in in some areas, so yeah, poetry writing or whatever. But aren't you? Don't you have a client? As a as an architect, I am mm-hmm. mm-hmm. not going to budge one inch on my. So I'm going to take my uh, recent uh, lottery winnings, right, and buy a you know a big plot of land and bring an architect out who will build the, the house that he thinks I should live. in. <laughs> yeah, <you're laughs> <not gonna be laughs> right, I mean, yeah. it's like I will not compromise. It's like, yeah, this thing is kind of a boxy, brutalist thing. That's my that's my vision. Thinking of it like an English manner. Like a, like a, <laughs> Here's what I want. You will not. You will not live in an English manor.
2: <laughs> well, I got to tell you, there's 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 a there's a book out there. Michael Pollan wrote a book called the uh, uh, something of uh, the, the the architecture of dreams, and it was really talking about uh, about him building himself a writing studio. And then it was talking about the tensions between his contractor builder and his architect. Mm -hmm. But then he sort of extrapolates that into a larger thing. But what I thought was really interesting was the fact is now, in architecture, there's different movements movements and different styles and different eras. And after the postmodern architectural style and era, there was the deconstructionist part of the era. And there was an architect who built this house exactly for a couple and you know and then you go into the house and the floors are not level and you got a big sort of a pillar that's standing up right in front of the um right in the stairwell and then in the dining room you have something you have like a wall that juts out so it's really hard to see things and Michael Pollan, who's a wonderful writer too, he just says very. He's like, well, he he captures the quote from the couple goes, well, sometimes you have to so- sacrifice to live in art. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: like, yeah. Okay, right. <laughs> right. yeah, if yeah. you want, I've got a, a where's my uh, my Ayn Rand capitalism quote. She's, uh, capitalism was the only—well, I don't know why she used past tense—the only system in history where wealth was not created by looting but by production, not by force but by trade. The only system that stood for man's right to his own mind, to his work, to his life, to his happiness, to himself. Uh-huh. And uh, so, you know, that's why that's con- very consistent with, uh, with with her philosophy. Why capitalism is just. With, all of its flaws is really the only the only way. I mean, that
2: sounds kind of true to me.
1: I mean, yeah, yeah where can you I'm, go I'm wrong with that? Arguing with America's that. abundance was created not by public sacrifices to the uh, common good, but by the productive genius of free men who pursued their own interests, in making of their own private fortunes. They did not starve the people to pay for America's industrialization, and on and on and on. Right? Yeah, so,
0: although, Although I would have to say, I mean, as much as I... So, yeah, as much as I like the idea of pushing that concept as far as it will go, the you know when you look into the details of like the guys who build the railroads and everything, they mm-hmm. relied on politicians to get them you know sweet deals on land and, and other kinds of things that kind of, in a way, robbed from the <laughs> robbed from the yeah. common good right. in order to make their their fortune. Yeah, so, in, like, in a way. Uh, so, I mean, so you
1: look at the, the great nineteenth century yeah. industrialists. Yeah, right. right. Uh, I mean, but would you would you have gotten the uh, the 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 railroad system that we have without somebody dominating the market? Yeah, probably Or not. the Rockefellers yeah. and the where, where oil and uh, uh, you, you know what I mean? It's like if,
2: if if it wasn't for the United States government and state governments out there that you we would not have created the railroad. We would not have created the interstate uh, highway system, mm-hmm. which is the thing that replaced it. We would not have created a lot. The, the, the relationship, the deep relationship between capitalist and government are, is, is, is well documented within history. And Anne Rand, if you wanted to say a, a, a criticism of, she's ahistorical. She doesn't know American history. Right. Hmm.
1: But, so, but think about this. Let me give you a few names. Here we are in the shadows of Baltimore City. Right. Uh, Pratt, Meyerhoff, Peabody, Mm-hmm. Hopkins okay uh the thi- they they built Baltimore's major institutions this was not done by committees of of bureaucrats right right so it was so in a way you could say yes but the, the you know the Vanderbilts and the Rockefellers Well, yeah, you know some people got screwed along the way probably but uh that that philanthropy is what built some of the major universities and hospitals and uh, what uh, 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 library systems?
2: Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, I could I could give you a little anecdote of um, Johns Hopkins was getting up in age and he had a wealth and no no, no children to give the, his wealth to, no. so he calls ah. uh, George Peabody and says, "Let's see, you know, come, please come over for dinner." You know, so George Peabody comes over for dinner, and they have a nice dinner, and they're sitting there chit-chatting. I don't know if it's at Clifton or if it's at his place in, uh, off of Saratoga Street. But the bottom line is they're, they're sitting there chit-chatting, and afterwards they go and get their brandy or the, the whatever they're sniffing, sure. uh, drinking, sipping at the time. And, um, you know, so finally he says, well, you know, I... So John says something, and I'm paraphrasing, by the way, so... He says, well, you know, I got a lot of money and I'm getting up there in age and, you know, I'm thinking of doing things with it. And George Peabody goes, well, Johns, I got to tell you, I had a hell of a lot of fun making my money. But I'm having a lot more fun giving it away. Right. Okay. Well, there so, you it. And, you know, I mean, if you want to use the virtue of selfishness, I don't know how you're going to apply that mm-hmm. to that. But I just love that anecdote.
1: Yeah, no, right. no, I like it too because if you had prevented... If you had said, "All right, 100% confiscation of money after whatever you know amount of money that the government has decided is all a person needs," uh, would Would they have ever done it? Yes, would that money have ended up creating the things that these uh, uh, that these private industrialists have have created? Probably not. That's probably. uh,
2: yeah, uh, a uh, argument, right. right? But the the idea too is the you know the United States government, the uh, uh, federal government, and the Maryland uh, militia was called out during the 1877 strike of the B and O railroad. So there is all of these sort of very close partnerships, and you know the idea of government not being in, in capitalism and capitalism not being in government is just a faucet. And, and that's where she really... I, I mean, I really... I mean, I, I like her. I mean, I... I mean, there's still... It's still but, going
1: on. The, the, right? The whole Ayn Rand Institute is still up oh, and yeah. running. And, yeah. you know, and uh, Michael Shermer, he said when he was... When he was in college, it was a big thing. Yeah. Yeah. Very... He was... He's was he's Very ageism. randy. Shermer, I think so, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. 38, 40. <laughs> <laughs> Something uh, like that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you know... Uh, yeah. So oh just the biggest before we leave the, the this is the the Fountainhead ran across an article in a, in a uh, architecture magazine that said <laughs> the Fountainhead Everything, everything that's wrong with architecture. (laughs) uh, Although, although he does acknowledge that uh, Howard Rourke has possibly done more for the profession in the past century than any real architect
0: has. In what way?
1: Well, just so this book is super. It was 1957, right? So in the '60s, you just had people wanting, like the only book about an architect, people just wanting to be architects. Uh, making architecture seem sexy. Oh, I think drawn okay. to the field yeah. and and then super inspired by his vision of what it means to be an architect, I which see. is where he says it all goes wrong. Because no, not everybody can come into the business and be an uncompromising genius. Right. And so, kind of, uh, mm-hmm. you have also, to build.
0: You have to build <laughs> for what the client wants. Yeah, yeah
1: a little bit. Right. I, I mean, mean there can client, be right. that guy. There is. You know, right. The the with the, guys, the guys, Frank Gary and. Uh, 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 the Frank Lloyd Wrights. yeah, so there's always going to be that guy, right. which is, I think, the problem with Rand in general. She'd think, not everybody's an Every, iconoclast. Exactly. Class. You, can't, you <laughs> can't have everybody be that guy. <laughs> yeah,
2: right. Yeah. Right. I,
1: mean, I, I appreciate celebrating that guy, but. Right. Right. right.
2: right. There's, there's the idea of a star architect and an architect. And the star architect <laughs> I like it. is where the client uh, hires that star architect to do whatever he wants because that's going to be a big, big, big splash. Uh, and then, ninety-eight percent of all the rest of us hire an architect because we, you know, we want to put it on an addition to our house, or we want to <laughs> build a house, and you know, we want to have a nice room here and over here. Well, and you, well, Tracy likes the architect that
1: so You could be the person who's associated with the star architect who made this. Groundbreaking yeah. building that you had no yeah. input on, right? So your involvement is just the right. you know.
2: You, you want to go to, to the it. cocktail party that says <laughs> exactly. I live in
0: Frankfort. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, 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 I know. So yeah. imagine, imagine I wanted to build an addition to my house, and I call on the architect and says, yeah. "You have to build it this way, or I'm not going to be involved." It's <laughs> <Right? So laughs> like, bye. <laughs> All right. So, do we have a man of the week?
1: Well, I, I have a different idea about the man of the week. I okay. think we should do a post and a tribute okay. to Neil Pert, the drummer for Rush. All righty. Yeah. Why you know, would we do that? Well, he passed away 13 months ago. But 13 months ago. Yeah. Is that, uh, doesn't, does that help- People don't usually celebrate 13 months. <laughs> uh, no, they don't. So I'm going to ask Longinus to explain why we would want to toast Neil Pert while doing a show on Ayn Rand.
2: Well, I, I well, well, thank you. I, uh, uh, I I was a drummer nice. as a as as a young man, and uh, Neil Peart, of course, was was one of the greatest drummers out there. Um, but more than that, as 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 I start to learn, he was the lyricist for Rush, mm-hmm. uh, and he was also such a well read and articulated person. He has three books to his name already, ah. of, so he, he's he's really uh, fascinating. But he Loved Ayn Rand. And, uh, he sort of incorporated Ayn Rand not only into his lyrics, but also into his life. And let me just explain, uh, the album 2112, if anybody's interested in that one. Uh, 2112 is actually, uh, uh has an Ayn Rand quote on there. It talks about, uh, uh, how much they were influenced by Ayn Rand. But the, the album, um, has the uh is it, a, song. Is, it
1: a, uh, is it a theme
2: it's 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 a themed album uh, where the first side is an uh, anthem and that is the story which is a lot like the anthem story of Anne Rand which talks about okay. how uh, this young right, this young man uh, is in a futuristic area is Tom Sawyer uh, uh, on there something. No, it's the top right. Story. So, what so what's the... I mean, that,
1: that's like the most well-known album. What's... Is there a... A uh, passage... A that people would...
2: Uh, a passage... With? Well, not really. Oh, not, not really. Okay. A uh, you know, passage right. to Bangkok, which was the pot-smoking song. There was Twilight, which is to the... I see, uh, but there Indian wasn't place. like a major not, radio... Not a major okay. And, and it, it was the album that changed things, and, I, and, and I'll get to that. But basically, the song, Anthem, was, was uh, about uh, a young man who finds a cave, and and in the cave, he finds a guitar. He finds a guitar, you know, and he starts playing around with it. He's like, oh, my God, you know, if you just stroke these strings, it makes beautiful sounds. And he's starting to make his own music, and he's starting to see this, like, freedom uh, through music and through art flourish. And he's like, oh, my God. And and, and this is futuristic, so, oh, my God, i got to go tell the priest of syrinx which is the priests okay. out there that run uh, everything? Very much like, like the book, yeah. Very much like Anthony, yeah. and he's. Like, I, I got to nice. tell them they're going to love this. So he goes to them and says, uh, "I know this is not what you want to hear, but I got this is such a great find. This is going to change everything, <laughs> make everybody's life better." And he plays the song, and of course, all the priests out there are like, "Oh, that's not going to do it. Well, no, just leave us alone. This is just leave that alone." And then finally, he goes back to the cave and spends the rest of his life in the cave. Um, so that was sort of his uh-huh. thing. There's two other songs out there I would like to say. Red Barchetta, which is really interesting. Not, it, it's
1: not on 21. This but? is Moving
2: Pictures. Red Barchetta is Moving Pictures. And the other one is Trees by, by Hemispheres. Let me do Trees first because that, that one comes first. Trees is a song, basically, and I love the analogy, where there is this forest out there full of different species of trees. Mm-hmm. And they're all growing at different heights. And all of a sudden, somebody comes in there and says, oh, we can't have that. How come that tree gets to grow at this height? How come that tree is only this height? Uh, let's get a lumberjack over here and we're going to cut the trees all at the <laughs> same size. Okay, I like it. I can yeah,
1: see so it. That, so that's, that's the and
2: Ransom. And there is probably... My favorite, which is often of moving pictures, red Barchetta, and that is about uh a young man who has an uncle that uh, uh, that has a country place that no one knows about, and he's walking around and he goes into a barn and he finds a red barchetta b- b- Barchetta I'm sorry, I just won't learn how to pronounce that, which is basically an old sports car, a uh, red okay. sports car okay. and this is in the future. And in the future, there are no really red sports car because safety concerns out there. Nobody's allowed to drive out there, and they're all <laughs> supposed to be driving these big, huge things. And if you're out there driving things like a red barquetta out there, that you're going to get in trouble. So he says, every Sunday, I go out there and commit my crime. And he takes the red barquetta out there, and he just drives throughout the country roads. And it's a story about that, and then he runs into these big, huge other sort of like the force out there and then he gets chased out there, and he escapes, and he goes back to the barn. But that's a beautiful, beautiful uh-huh. song. Um, and so, so that's really why I think that you know, if there was somebody that helped to perpetuate, or even lived, let me talk about what happened with uh, um, you know the uh, Caressa Steel, which was the album that was created, I think, in 73, 74 by Rush, and that that album didn't do very well. It was Poor poor reception, and uh, they went on what they call the Down the Tubes uh, um, uh, concert tour, and nobody was ready to go there. And the only reason (laughs) they were allowed to create another album is because they had a really good contract with the record company. And the record company says, Well, guys we want you to really create a song you know we want you to reduce the times on short on these songs song, yes. short songs poppy we right. want you know the themes to be lighthearted and everything and getty and alex and neo all got together and said what are we going to do and they said we're going to keep on going the way that we are now we're going to create a theme song uh-huh. and they create 2112 and, and that's their
1: biggest. And they can't.
2: Yeah. Well, that was the song that after 12 months after it was out, it goes with gold or platinum. I think I can't mm-hmm. remember which one it was. Right. And it really puts them on there, and it really creates for them. their By defying man, <laughs> by defying, by who doing they things are, the by way they do doing the artists. way, yep. not
1: less the uncompromising. <laughs> yeah. and then, hold on! Give me some. Give me some Neil Perk quotes. All right.
2: um where are they? Right
1: here? Yeah, there's two at the bottom. Um,
0: I think everything I do has Howard Rourke, Hero of the Fountainhead, in it. You know, as much
2: as anything, the person I write for is Howard Rourke. And then he says, Howard Rourke stood as a role model for me, as exactly the way I already was living. Even at the tender age, 18, I already felt that. And it was intuitive or... Or instructive, or inbred stubbornness, or whatever, but I had already made those choices and suffered for them. Whoa! Okay.
1: Oh, he was, all, he was already had that feel, and then reads, reads Fountainhead, and goes, "My God, that's me!" And uh, held on to it. Well, here's okay? the question. Here's the, here here's
2: the question. I don't want to say anything bad about Rush because there's still, uh, you know. They're still as great as they were when I was 15 and they are when I'm 55. Oh, 38, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but, you know, all of a sudden, this is, you know, Rush is a three-person group. And that's sort right. of a collective of something or other. And they need to come together. And I think that you could actually go through the Ayn Rand philosophy and, and she would justify working with a group of three or four. But what happens when you start to get... You know, 100,000. gets a little more day, difficult. Exactly.
1: Well, that
0: makes sense. Now I understand why we're. Now uh, that's flabber- why to- we're toasting. So, toast? so to
1: Neil Perch, uh, yes, may you uh, drum throughout all eternity. <laughs> Rest all in right,
0: peace. All right. There we go. <laughs>